0: Review, 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 review,
1: review, with me and, me and you. you.
0: Welcome to our Time to Show Up review episode where Natalie and I take a deeper dive into last week's interview.
1: If you hadn't had the chance to listen to that yet, you might want to check it out before listening further here. It'll make a lot more sense that way.
0: That's right, because in this episode, we will be talking more about the theory behind the material that came up in that interview, so we can better understand the elements that were going on there.
1: We'll also be suggesting reading, practices, and models that may help listeners like yourself who are experiencing resonant challenges and opportunities in their own lives.
0: In this, our first season of Time to Show Up, we're making all of our content freely available to the public, but in the future, these review episodes will only be available within our subscriber community.
1: Members of this community will have access to all Time to Show Up content, plus additional resources, materials, access to online forums, live events, and small groups.
0: Since we know that just listening to stuff isn't usually enough to facilitate desired change, We've designed this community to give you the support you need to take your learning even further. And if you join us at the start of our journey and sign up before April 5th, 2024, we're offering a no strings three month membership for free at timetoshowup.org.
1: That's right. And if you choose to stay on with us, which we hope you will, we'll give you a 25% early bird discount just to say thank you. If you're tuning in after that April date, don't worry, you can still try out a free two-week membership with no obligation. There are different packages to choose from, and you can find out more and get in touch at timetoshowup.org.
0: So without further ado... Okay, so we're just coming away from this really great conversation uh, with Steve Watson, and there are a few themes that arose that Mm. both took both of our interests right yeah. um one kind of has to do with how you find your way towards something like mm. vocational how you hear a calling how you answer a calling and you work towards it and then the other part is this sort of psychodynamic piece right which is steve's relationship with his father this message about uselessness yeah. and then how that can become this motivating factor in how you try and solve that so mm-hmm. we're going to dig into those themes a little bit
1: Start
0: again. Loud. Yeah. Yeah. It really is that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll take notes. That's fifty seconds. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: so we're just coming away from this really fabulous interview with Steve Watson, and a few themes that have arisen that we're both going to be discussing is. The first one, which has to do with vocation, mm. calling, vision, you know, what led him in that direction, how you hear that, and uh, what, what you have to bring on board to achieve it. Mm. And then, probably what I would call the more psychodynamic end of things, which is how his early relationships, particularly with his father, led to a kind of internalized story mm. that then needed to be compensated for that meets this. Idea somewhere, which you know, I hope we can come to find a little bit of resonance between the two of them. Yeah. You know, how how I need to make up for my feeling of uselessness through this sense of um, this kind of vision or vocation, yeah.
1: and also how that piece around the uselessness and kind of going the trodden path that people think if you just do this and you accomplish security through you know working your way up the ranks, but that kind of it, it could be quite tempting or easy to go down that route and that question of actually what am I really moved from within to do never reach the surface. And in his case, obviously it does reach the surface. And then the question is, what, how does that dance in relationship with the uselessness drive the sense of how do I how do I get my, my father to be proud of me, um, not in connection with what he expected for me, but in connection with what I've actually created in the world. So some really interesting kind of uh, relationships happening there.
0: Yeah, for sure. and. Also, like what, what defines success, yeah. right? So, you know, on paper, there's like, there's no, there's no question, right? Like very <laughs> few people achieve that kind of success with that kind of goal. But, but how success is, a, it's, it's really an internal mm. situation. So in terms of like models and theory, you know, go back to the original guy to start with, you know, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, Freud's conception of this thing called the superego, right? And the superego is kind of like, the rules and regulations that we absorb from our parents or mm-hmm. from society um, usually has to do with morality or ethics or conscience and that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> and superegos can be really pernicious. So like the mm-hmm. superego is the part of you that tells yourself off for not having done well enough, right? <laughs> that no matter what you achieve, you could have done better. It's the it's the pernicious underlying voice behind um, uh imposter syndrome right because you do this and then there's other things like but yeah really yeah so I just want to think a little bit about how because I think most of us tend to be motivated by superego and I call that a pernicious motivation right it's to get away from the uselessness feeling Mm -hmm. but it's not all a bad thing because I think for Steve it partly did answer that question
1: and it created some fuel as well there was some kind of motivating activating force that propelled him so that it's, it's maybe also by having that sense of discomfort as much as you don't necessarily want it or enjoy the sensation it can nonetheless be some of the fuel in our tank and if that vehicle if you like is oriented in the direction that is motivating to you that is deeply connected with a sense of calling then it, you know it gets you on your way I suppose it's if the car is in the wrong direction and people are going take that road and you really don't want to be taking that road yeah then it really compounds issues
0: I, I mean I, well. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's I, I think it's difficult right because mm. he said something really uh, insightful which is that it was unconscious right so that that motivation yeah. is unconscious and I think it always is to start with mm-hmm. and I think that question is what happens when it becomes conscious yeah right because I think if it's if you've got the motivation in the car and you're going down the wrong way, that's one kind of badness, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if it's the same motivation and you're going in the right way, it can still be a kind of a badness, mm. right? Because you're still trying to answer something that you've swallowed whole that isn't true. Yeah. Right? Because you're not useless, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like he became conscious that that was his motivation. And even now with the help of therapy and insight, mm. it's conscious and yet it's still there. And right? it's still present. Yes. Um, and I think that is a lifelong task but I think that that thing that you're saying about like it it's it's the direction the car is going in it's the petrol in the tank mm-hmm. but then it's also becoming aware that you're going in the wrong direction yeah. or what kind of petrol is in the tank. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And switching to an electric. <laughs> <Switching not. laughs> See how far we can take this yes. Yeah. Um yeah I mean I think there's an interesting question there around success which is clearly connected in and there's a few things to say about that. One is whether success is actually the the definition that you've inherited from those around you, Um, how much of it is something that we actually examine and we go, okay, what does success actually mean? Because it's so loaded. And the question of when is whatever we've achieved enough? Is it enough intrinsically? Do I feel that when I've created this novel, something exists that previously didn't? And so there's a sense of desire to create the thing and then it exists and then there's that sort of relationship which is quite an intimate one between you and the mm-hmm. the the object if you like and the process versus the secondary success the extrinsic success the kind of the external validation the money coming into your account and how that connects and that kind of that arrival fallacy of if i only get to uh, getting my book in the chart then that'll be amazing and then you get there and it's like he said seven weeks oh, if I only get to the eighth week or the 29 countries if I only get to the 30th and it's that kind of sense of the quality of um, the moment and reaching that success goal where you've landed and then actually is it satisfying once you once you reach that point
0: yeah yes and then like success becomes how you value yourself right so the oh. whole thing is about like you know, you're talking about that motivation. It's like, so if my motivation is that I have a sense of valuelessness mm. and then it motivates me to seek value, but I keep the same story, so I achieve that value, but I'm still valueless, then that's oh. a problem, right? Um, but this is a cultural thing too because we have a culture where success is value. And
1: it's productivity. As and well it's as productivity,
0: either. right? <clears throat> but I think you have this interesting problem too where, like, say – you know, you didn't have that motivation and you felt unconditionally loved growing up and you felt all okay and that you didn't need to, you know, I'm good enough as I am, all yes. that stuff that we talk about. Would you or would you not be motivated to achieve? And, and I think that you can, because I think you can be motivated by the drive that you were kind of more talking about, the, the mountain drive, right? Mm-hmm. Like what makes me flourish, what makes me feel good. Um, but it, I also think it would it would matter less the outcome, right? Really? Yeah, I think philosophically it's really interesting because it's like you don't need the marker of success to get value. So like Steve said, you know, like maybe the next step is that I just enjoy writing and if it's a success, that's great. And if it's not, mm-hmm. it's not. Which it might be easier for him to say as someone who's been, you know, yeah. really bloody successful there, yeah. <laughs> right? But I think that connection to value, success equals value. But if the internalized story is still valuelessness mm-hmm. success isn't going to fix it until you fix that story so then,
1: but then you get into some really interesting territory around um something particularly with the creative arts uh i recently was delving into the story of francis bacon who i mean he was an extraordinary artist but one of the stories that i had encountered was the fact that and i well i'll say the fact was the story that um one of the people who was i think an agent mike figure would introduce him To relationships, and then the relationships would, the story goes, purposefully be disrupted. So he would be heartbroken, so he would create. And it was this sense of you know, success for whom, in what form. So, you know, if you've got someone whose life's work is facilitated or instigated in large part by a response to suffering. And you go to an exhibition. It's full of these very moving paintings that would not have happened if not in direct relationship or response to pain. Then you know it's back to that question of how much the question of value, or like the pearl that creates the pearl because of the grit. Pearls don't happen in absence of the grit. Um, Is pain a precondition for creative expression? I mean, that's a whole other philosophical question. Yeah, but
0: I I mean, this is this is why I enjoy doing these things with you, and why this is so (laughs) important to me as a project because. You know, what you get from Instagram or whatever about these sorts of things, they're so nuanced and so complex, right? So you can think of uh, someone's pain being expressed through their art as an expression of that pain, right? Right. It's a working through of something, which is slightly different from feeling not good enough and needing your art to be winning an award, right? And then I think about someone like, you know, Judy Garland, for example, who, you know, on paper was doing all this amazing yeah. stuff, but was like abused and miserable. And, you know, like like being an object of success for other people yes. also.
1: It's so tricky, isn't it? I mean, all of it's messy. And I think there are occasional, there must be occasional examples of people are creative for the unadulterated joy of creating. And it's, you know, all love and light, you know? That kind of thing. <laughs> um, I guess the reality is is more that life is messy, and if you're lucky enough to have some kind of creative practice to help you, I guess mm, digest and then sublimate what you're or transform the experience that you're having. Well, you know, that's, I think
0: that's uh, that's right, and I think you can't always have that, and I think maybe what what he didn't say, mm. but I guessed a little bit, and correct this <laughs> in the comments or whatever. Right? <laughs> yes, but it's now. like you know that first book was something that came from this kind of source, right? And then presumably got a contract for a second book, which wasn't, so it became work, right? It became a thing that needed to be done because now I'm a writer, right? And now I get a three book contract. And then, so the whole paradigm shifts to something different. And then you have to find some different, Way you know what I mean? It's a, that second book is not doing the same job as the first. it's like that that tricky
1: second album syndrome? <laughs> I think so.
0: But then you have that whole concept of satisficers and maximizers as well, right? Like there's someone, uh, and I'm probably I'm more of a satisficer in a lot of areas, except maybe when it comes to food and various <laughs> other comforts. Do you I just
1: explain what those two? Yeah. Are so
0: like a satisficer is someone who is generally satisfied with like. A, a relatively easy outcome right yeah. like i'd be satisfied if i had written that book and it sat in a drawer and nobody ever read it because i wrote the book mm. whereas a maximizer is like well it has to be a bestseller
1: yeah it
0: has to be on the charts for so long and and the research does seem to indicate that satisficers are happier
1: yes yeah, yeah.
0: but maximizers are are more productive mm. <laughs> so it's also where you put your value yeah. you know yeah it's better for you to be a satisficer, but you're less yes. likely to produce uh, a knockout blockbuster, possibly because the motivation that you're talking about isn't, isn't, isn't there. there. Yeah.
1: Well, I wonder also if it's a question of, because there's something around, there's also something around identity and um, how much we take on the... modalities we engage in so for instance if you're someone who plays music sometimes and you can have the most beautiful moments when you're playing music but most of the time you have a different job that's completely not that does that mean that you are a musician or does that mean that you are whatever the other thing is that you spend most of your time doing so i think there's also that question of when you're creating something and it's coming from that place there's there's a question for me around how much how much gets lost potentially? it's a bit of a kind of leading question when once you've created that thing from that source place, which you will really deeply moved to put into the world and then it becomes, let's say, successful and then you're required to productize it and you put it through the machinations of capitalism and then there's pressure and people expect more from you and it becomes more of an extrinsically related endeavor. Mm-hmm. Does that then, how much does that then corrode the core of what, was kind of at the the heart of what created the first one. So there's also that question of it's uh, the interaction of kind of the, the creative impulse with a culture that values hyper productivity um, and the valuing through finances, through money. Like there's, and all the all the stakeholders. It might be that the first book you write because you're the only stakeholder, because you are the one with the story and you have to and so it's in its in a sense it's kind of in its purest form. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about formulas, and maybe the formula that you've got is amazing, and then you can write a gazillion books and be a bestseller. Or maybe the other themes and stories that you that you work on don't come from the same place. Or, I don't know, there's so many factors. It's I feel like I'm sort of entangling myself a little here, but it's very complicated
0: it, it is complicated and i think i think capitalism is a problem right and, definitely I, <laughs> a problem. and i do think that the commodification of a, really anything whether it's your body or your artwork or your time or your labor yeah. and i'm not particularly a marxist but it does have it is alienating right so i think yeah. that's true but i don't quite also believe in like the 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 pureness of what you're describing, <laughs> right? like that, there is this pure beauty of an expression. Do
1: you not think so? I
0: well, I just think that. Well, I think there are moments, yeah, right? It's like happiness. So I, I, I think that life is just messy. It's always going to throw curveballs at you. That there are going to be moments of beauty, and there are going to be moments that aren't. Yeah. Your beauty is going to be co opted, and you've got to decide how you manage it. Yeah. Right. Like I think, and I think it's always like I, I think if you had a um a utopia where like art was vastly funded, right? And we didn't have any needs. I'm not sure um, that would create more room for unmitigated, beautiful.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, Yeah.
0: But I do just, I do want to just come back to the thing about value again, because I think for listeners, the question really is uh, how do I as an individual, how can I allow myself as an individual to accept my value Right, rather than needing a particular form of success to mark that value, which necessarily equals that you're operating from a scarcity mentality. You're always seeking more to fill a hole that keeps draining.
1: So you know? when you're saying value, it's like, I am worthy because I've achieved X, Y, and Z, but we never quite achieve enough for us to feel like we're worthy.
0: Yeah. So it's like, it's like yeah, it's just this problem of tense. Like I will be worthy yes, if I achieve. Yes. Yeah. or when. Yes. Yes. And the question, well, it's like, I, I am worthy and I think is the healthiest, Yeah.
1: right? But it's interesting because when he talked about when he finally speaks with his father and he kind of corners him to, which I completely understand to say, please just give me an answer. I've been wasting all this time. Do me the respect of just saying yes or mm-hmm. no, like to make it as simple as possible and how hard it is for the father and how then even when he does get the answer, it's almost like he doesn't need the answer as much as he did somehow, that it lands differently because of all the the grappling and the presumably the work that he's had to put in over the years to find yeah. his own feet somehow.
0: And I think that's ideal. I think I think ultimately we have to do that for ourselves at some yeah. stage. Recognition from others is super important. But uh, generally we're not many of us are <laughs> not gonna get the validation or recognition that we need from the original people who gave us that yeah. drive.
1: Our parents or other yeah. parent caregivers.
0: And for lots of people, that person's already gone. Like they won't yeah. give it or they've already died. And, and it's really the internalized person that you're dealing yeah. with. Like for Steve, the, the uselessness that remains has nothing to do with his father mm. now, right? Because he, can't, he may or may not ever satisfy that man. But mm-hmm. to be able to satisfy that inside, which it sounded like he'd been doing a lot of thinking about and has mm-hmm. come a lot closer than he was when he was younger,
1: so maybe that's that's a good thing to kind of dive into to, to get some practical tips out of this is if like for you listening or watching, you're thinking, okay, well, I get that. I have a sense of wanting to strive for something to get the validation from someone that may not ever give it to me. How do we begin to work in dialogue with ourselves to kind of, I don't know if it's to to reparent ourselves or to, to look after that part that needs that validation, but is is unable to get it from those caregivers like where do we begin
0: so I think insight's always the first step right so in in cognitive psychology you think about your you know your belief systems you think about your core beliefs and you become aware as Steve was like okay I have a core belief that I'm not good enough or I have a core belief that I'm useless and then you kind of have to start to undermine that right? You can do that with a therapist, you can do work on your own, Mm -hmm. right? But you have to see that there's this independent, autonomous voice in you, negative voice that throws you out a story that you end up spending the rest of your life trying to answer. And that can be anything. It could be like, relationships don't last, or nobody's ever happy, or people are untrustworthy. It could be the opposite of that.
1: Or no one's got my back, or I'm not good enough.
0: All that stuff. Yeah. So my, my thing is always like, well, if you feel a compulsion, almost, to satisfy that voice Mm -hmm. that's when some alarm bells should be going off which is like okay because I've tried to solve this like Mm. I've tried to solve this problem five times in the same way I've got five promotions and I still feel like I've got imposter syndrome maybe I need to start thinking about what's propelling me forward for these promotions and why it's not doing the job and then you become aware of that core belief but then you have to be open to changing your personal story about it because if you're not a useless person
1: (laughs) and then that's tricky I think also the other thing is like learning which those which those voices are and sometimes it's um remember for me, for instance, there were one or two refrains that would literally verbatim come up on full volume in my mind and I learned to catch them. And so one of them was, no one's got my back. And it would just come out like casually in conversation. Occasionally it would come out until eventually in a conversation with a therapist, they're like, I, I don't remember if it was the exact words, but they, they pinpointed it. And if you have good friends or um, compassionate colleagues that you have that kind of level of, I guess, candor with, you can also recruit people into to helping you figure out what those patterns are because these things crop up. It's a bit like whack-a-mole. It's like totally. it'll crop up over here and maybe like, ah, I'm going to stop saying that and it'll crop up over here. But to try and notice these patterns to, to the insight piece as well, because they can come up quite repetitively in a fairly boring, <laughs> unchanging way, Yeah. in which case they're much easier to, to track somehow. Um, I don't know if that's your experience. It's certainly been mine. Yeah, for, for yourself, sure.
0: And, you know, some people keep a thought journal yeah. and oh. um, this is very popular in cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy where you'll you'll identify um, a triggering event, the thoughts that came from that triggering event, you challenge those thoughts that mm. came from it and come to another conclusion. I find that that kind of works a little bit, but mm. it never quite goes deep enough because those things are so foundational.
1: Mm.
0: And what helps for me, like in the whack-a-mole thing... <laughs> I find that the spin out is the best source of information ever.
1: The spin out being
0: when you find yourself spinning out yeah. because you've had feedback from someone or you got an email or someone criticized you, and you find yourself in a spin out, I call it just a neurotic spin. yeah, yeah, you're coming up ways with to defend yourself or there's this like loud, right? If you're in a spin out, I just find that ninety percent of the time, perhaps more someone or something has touched your core belief or your complex around that issue. And that it's not about like, so you stop spinning out and you say, I have been, again, Steve, mm-hmm. Steve was worried about the word triggered and I am a little bit too, because it's yeah. a bit over you. Well, like, I've been activated. Exactly. I've been emotionally activated. So I'm, I'm curious about my activation. Rather than I have to respond to the thing that happened, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, because the tendency often is to, or at least for me, sometimes it's like I've got to fix this now. And of yes. course, if you're in that state, I always feel it like it's just kind of a I haven't had it for a while, touch with, um, but when it's it's almost like skating on ice, when my mind's skating and there's no traction anywhere. Yes, it's just kind of, and it's it's that sense of yeah of that skatingness. And then to just be able to take a breath or if you're with someone and they see that you're spinning out or just to know what to name it, mm-hmm. to be able to say to yourself, I'm spinning out. There's something here. And to just give yourself a pause um, back to that. Well, I suppose it wasn't a Viktor Frankl quote, it was someone who quoted him and summarised his work and talked about between um, something happening and the response. There's a space and therein lies our choice. I'm totally paraphrasing. Uh, but that idea that if we can just enlarge that moment of of, of pause perhaps you have greater access to a different choice.
0: Yes. And that's all about being able to tolerate the discomfort of that moment without trying to fix it. Right. Yeah. So when your life becomes a job of fixing mm. the hole or the wound that you got as a child, then it's like life can be a spin out. Right. Yeah. And then, and, and then that's why that often kicks off a lot of midlife crises. Right. Because mm. like you've been living your life to fix this problem that was never yours in the first mm-hmm. place. You just absorbed it from your family upbringing. You're like, Oh my gosh, I'm totally dissatisfied, and I think Steve's story is really great because he's like a perfectly reasonable, respectful job, you know, moving up bit by bit, but identifying on a very deep level, which is listening to something other than the super mm. ego, right? Which is like, actually, my flourishing is over here. Yeah, my true expression of value is over here, and then it took time, right? Like I'm going to commit. To feeding this value and yeah. see what happens, which I think is really important.
1: I think there's something around that, making it it's like a bounded risk. So if you give yourself five years, which he did, which is an amazing commitment, and making that commitment to yourself, which can also be, I think, in itself an antidote to the sense of uselessness or worthlessness, to give yourself permission to say, I'm gonna commit five years to myself, to this endeavor, to see what happens. Because, you know, if I get to my dying breath and I haven't tried it, that will feel like a, a greater failure than having that bounded time and a set of um, specific practical goals to get behind. So whether it's um, a goal of writing one novel in the space of that time or some people like we talk about this quite a bit, like X amount of hours or minutes a day or you sign up to a group that meets once a week or NanoRimo, which is like national... Um, fiction writing or book writing month that happens in November, I know people who've written books like that, to give yourself that bounded time, the commitment to do something then it also takes away some of the the additional stress of this being either an insurmountable task, I'm up this mountain, how the hell am I going to get up that one, don't worry about the big mountain, just give yourself a little bit of a box task to do and then also the sense that you, you have something which is suddenly much more manageable and then if it doesn't work well, at least you've made some actionable plan and you're doing something specifically to support yourself. Um, so the practical part, I think, is really important.
0: I I think it's really important. Because <laughs> yeah, like, I'm thinking about some of the other interviews we've had, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there is a kind of myth out there that, like, when you find your calling, oh. you know, the universe responds and comes to you, right? Yeah. But every person that we've spoken to has expressed a great deal of very hard work.
1: Sorry, coffee time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not you, it's me. Thanks. Um, no, it's, it's all the hard work. I mean, yes. I no, mean, but yeah. it's true. It's yeah. not necessarily sexy and woo and manifest. and are, I mean, you know, it's like a whole phrase of like, um, pray to God and tie up your camel or pray to God and put in the work. Yes. Whatever, you know.
0: Um, the book's not going to write itself. The
1: book's not going to write shit itself. Shit got to be done. Shit has got to be done. Yeah. <laughs> Do the doing. Yes. We need t shirts.
0: And I think the capacity, and maybe we'll cover this more another thing, the capacity to listen to different voices, right? Different mm. indicators. Like if that indicator is the old pernicious one, right? And the other one that's a little bit more of a whisper, that's a little bit more of a calling, which is like, this actually goes against your story about yourself. Mm. But if you listen in and if you work, You're going to be healing yourself Mm. in, I think, a much better way than this kind of old, tired system trying Mm. to meet the needs of this internalized, you know, negative voice or whatever it is that tells you about your value or not.
1: I love the idea of healing yourself through listening to the quiet voice. Mm. Um, There's something very beautiful in that. And also reminds me of uh, Lisa Marciano's conversation with us where there is that sense of like, it's almost the intuition that will not let you go. Yes. And there's a persistence to it, like a little quiet thrum that just never quite disappears.
0: And I think the difference between people who find themselves unable to manifest that Mm. and those that do are those that leave those little signals around and and wait for it to happen, right? And those who finally, you know, the the penny drops and it's like, okay, well, I need to make time for this. I need to invest in this. I need to work to make it happen because no one's going to hand it to me.
1: And the time is finite. There was, I had a really wonderful conversation the other day with a chap called Joe Confino, who's amazing, and he co-hosts the only... Oh, wait. The Way Out is In podcast with Brother Fapu of Plum Village. Um, Anyway, we were conversing about this, and one of the things that he was talking about, one of the many things that he was talking about was... Oh, shit, I've gone and lost my train of thought. What are we talking about just now? <laughs> <laughs> this happens occasionally.
0: About listening to the quiet voice?
1: Listening to the quiet voice. Ah, no, that's it. About the impermanence of things. <laughs> the impermanence <laughs> of my attention span, clearly, without enough caffeine. But the point that he made was that um, in Plum Village, which is a, a Zen Soto community in France, one of the things that they do in the mornings was meditate on these five ideas or... or I suppose and I've forgotten what two of them were but the three that really jumped out to me which you can practice if you want to and I've started doing this in the daytime is to acknowledge the reality principle as you would say of life which is Mm -hmm. life is impermanent I am impermanent there is sickness I will get sick there is death I will die which sounds extremely morbid and yet if you think about that then suddenly at least for me it's kind of well, everything is super precious. The um, you know the yawn is precious. The conversation is precious. Mm. There's kind of it, it. It means that you're then reorienting towards a sense of the the vitality of life in this moment, and not having to wait till you hit a midlife crisis mm-hmm. or latter years where maybe there's a, a sense of gosh, why have I wasted all this time? If you can realize how precious and poignant life and time is sooner on a daily basis, then maybe we start making decisions from a, a different place um, and not one of scarcity, but one of poignance. And there's a real, for me, a felt sense of difference between the scarcity and the poignance.
0: Uh, yes, I agree. And, and I think we live in a culture that really prizes the, the end product and yeah. doesn't prize the journey. I think there's a lot of wisdom from Buddhism around our attachment to outcomes and our mm. lack of attention to processes. I'm also thinking of a book and we can put it in the show notes uh, called the way, which is a Taoist approach oh, Yeah. that talks, uh, I think two researchers from Harvard. I think Pruitt's one of the names. We'll, we'll, we'll sort that out and get it into the notes for you. Really good research. Also Oliver Bertman's book, 4,000 weeks, which really puts, the, there's two things that one of them is that you, know, you got about 4,000 weeks and the other yeah. one, and I, I forget, uh, we'll speak to him about this, but um, the insignificance, Concept, which is, you know, when you think about the things that we get hung up about mm. and you work out how insignificant you are yes. in the terms of the universe, there's a kind of relief that comes like that. Yeah. So I think there's a whole cosmic level that, uh,
1: that you're saying. Yes, mm.
0: yes. And that we kind of have to remember that um, our egos are very concerned with what the ego is up to and <laughs> is doing and isn't doing. And that actually, there's like, th- yeah. there's a much bigger thing going on.
1: A much bigger thing going on.
0: Yes. On that note, on that note, um, <laughs> some of the theories and resources that we've talked about, we will uh, point you in the direction of in the show notes, mm-hmm. and we look forward to seeing you back for the next time to show
1: up. Show thanks. <laughs>